Hi everyone. Uh, keep Matthew 16 open there and you'll also see your sermon outline that gives uh, direction that we're going. Let's get into these words together. A few weeks ago we looked at the story of Jesus uh, walking on the water and I said that that miracle is probably Jesus' most famous miracle. Well, today we come to what I think are some of Jesus' most famous words, uh, at least among those who claim to be Christians. Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus says. But, as always, just because they're famous, it doesn't mean that they're understood or believed in or lived by. Uh, The example of this is the way that people misquote this passage, the saying that's kind of come from this passage. uh, We all have our crosses to bear. Wow, Uh, this passage has so much more to say than that, than, oh, we all have some struggles in our life. So we should pray, shouldn't we? We should pray and ask God for his help in understanding, believing, and living by these words. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we give you thanks for these good words of the Lord Jesus, as challenging and confronting as they are. We pray that you would help us to understand what they mean, to be convicted of their truth, and then to live in light of them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first, let's think about what we saw last week in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, Last week, we saw Jesus rebuke the Pharisees and Sadducees, the Jewish religious leaders, and he rebuked them for their unbelief. He said, you can read the sky, you can predict the weather, but you can't see who I am. And you can't believe in me. And so this leads Jesus, actually, just it says he, he left them. He walks away from them. And then he teaches his disciples. He focuses on those who believe in him. Beware of the yeast or the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees, he says. Beware that callous attitude that is critical of everything I say and do, that, that, that will not believe in me and who I am according to what I can do. But in our passage today, we kind of see the clear opposite of this attitude. The opposite of the teaching of the Jewish leaders is what we see in the disciples today. We see a clear picture of who Jesus is, what he must do, and therefore how to follow him. And these words are famous, aren't they? They're famous for a reason. And that's because this is a pivotal moment in Matthew's gospel. This is a turning point, and not just in Matthew's gospel, in all of history. So let's do everything we can to put distractions aside, whatever you've been through today or this week, and let's focus on these words and what Jesus says to us. Let's start from the beginning where we see who Jesus is. Look at it, verse 13 with me. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? You might remember that for many chapters now, Jesus has been desperately, not desperately, he's been trying to get away and have some downtime. Uh, Since COVID hit last year, I've been trying to get to Queensland, and two weeks ago, I finally got there. It was amazing. Uh, But Jesus, he's trying to get away from the crowds, but they just keep finding him. They just keep hunting him down. And of course, Jesus has compassion on them, doesn't he? He heals them. He feeds them. But now, finally, Jesus has the quiet 
that he's been looking for. He's all the way up north in the place called Caesarea Philippi. If you looked at the map in the back of the Bible, you might see it. There's uh, Most of the time, Jesus spends his time uh, in Galilee, and then he goes to Jerusalem down in the south sometimes, but way up north is Caesarea Philippi. It's kind of like the middle of nowhere. They've got some peace and quiet. And it's here, it's here away from the crowds, just with these disciples, just with those who've chosen to follow him around. He's just with them, and it's here that he asks them this all-important question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? The Son of Man, that's Jesus' favorite cryptic name for himself. It's kind of his way of saying, yes, I am the promised Messiah, but I don't want everyone to know that yet. I'm just kind of keeping that under wraps. He uses this ambiguous name. And so Jesus is asking, well, who do the crowds, the people, the, the general population, who do they say I am? As you travel about, as you hear people talk, what do they say? What, what's the goss? What's the rumors, guys? Come on. I want some juicy goss. What do the disciples say? Look at verse 14. They reply, some say you're John the Baptist. Come back to life because John the Baptist is dead. And remember, that's what Herod thought of Jesus. Some say you're Elijah. God had promised that one day he would resend the prophet Elijah, and some people think you're him, Jesus. Or some people think you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets from the Old Testament. Now there is some, some who have been asking the question, is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the king God promised? Think of the Canaanite woman we saw a few weeks ago. She calls him what? Son of David. But for the most part, people think he's a prophet. You know the saying, if it looks like a duck, swims like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's probably a a duck, not a chicken. They say Jesus teaches like a prophet. He says strange things like, like a prophet. He does miracles like some prophets. He must be a prophet. He doesn't sound like a powerful king figure. We think he's a prophet. But now Jesus shows he's not really even interested in what people think about him, what the crowds think about him. All along he was asking this first question to get to his real question. What's his real question? Look at verse 15. But you, you my disciples, you who have followed me all over the place, you who have heard what I've said and seen what I've done, who do you say that I really am? See, Jesus is provoking a response, isn't he? He's getting them to think and to, to open their mouth and to own what they say, what they think of who he is. And you can imagine at this point, everyone's a little bit nervous. Maybe there was some shuffling awkwardly. Uh, nobody wants to be the person who gives the wrong answer at this point. Uh, but yet again, Peter is the first disciple to stand up and speak. Uh, look at it with me. There's this pivotal moment in Matthew's Gospel. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Peter speaks up, and unlike other times, this time he could not get it more right. Everyone has their theory on Jesus being a prophet. Peter cuts through all of this and says, No, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ or the anointed one. That's what that word means. You are the king that God promised would come. The king who would save his people and who would rule over all the nations forever. That's what it means to be the Messiah. And that's what Peter was declaring. 
And so Peter, he's an example to follow here, isn't he? When you see Jesus in all his power and glory and all his compassion, you say, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God, Jesus. That's the right response. But more on that later as the picture keeps building. Because Jesus responds to Peter with words of praise. Sometimes it pays off to be the eager one and have a big mouth. Look at verse 17 with me. He says, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed. You are blessed by God because it's God who has revealed this information to you. Praise God that he does reveal himself to us and does reveal his plans to us. But then verse 18, and I also say to you, Peter, that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. How encouraging would that have been for Peter, for Jesus to respond to him and give him these words of praise. They're encouraging words for Peter. Uh, Unfortunately, they come to us as slightly confusing words. Uh, Why do I say that? Well, they take a bit of work to understand what Jesus is saying. Uh, First of all, notice what Jesus says. He says to Simon, you are Peter. Uh, When Jesus met Simon, that was his name, that's sort of the name his parents gave him, Jesus gave him a nickname, Peter, or Kephas. It's the same word in two different languages. And And it's actually a name that Jesus made up. This is the first Peter ever in existence. Jesus coined the name. But Jesus didn't just make up this nickname because he thought it sounded cool. Uh, it means something. The name Peter mean, or the name Kephas, they both come from the same word. They mean rock, stone. And so Jesus' nickname for Simon was the rock. And I know that you can't help but thinking of that famous Dwayne Johnson, the rock, uh, the, the famous actor now turned rest, sorry, the famous wrestler now turned actor, or maybe you always thought he's been an actor because professional TV wrestling is not really professional or real. It's acting. Sorry if I've dashed your dreams of becoming a professional wrestler at this point. Uh, so Jesus says, Simon, you are the rock. That is your new name. And he says, on this rock, I will build my church. And these are the confusing and debated words of Jesus. People have understood them in many different ways, and so we should come to them with a bit of humility. Uh, we should come to them knowing that, we, uh, that there are other Christian brothers and sisters who come to a different conclusion. But hopefully you can see some reason in what I'm about to say. The nature of the debate is this. What is this rock that Jesus will build his church on? Some people go for the simplistic answer. Peter's name means rock, and so Peter is the rock that Jesus will build his church on. And so they say, well, Peter, he's like the head of the early church, or he's the head of all the apostles. He's like the boss. And you might be aware that the Roman Catholic Church takes this to the extreme. The teaching of the Roman Catholic Church is that here, Jesus is instituting Peter as the first pope, giving him authority to lead and rule over all the church. And Jesus is, is instituting not just Peter, but every Pope after him, so that there's always this man, the Pope, who's the head of the church and who runs everything and who has the same authority as Peter, even the authority to interpret Scripture without fail. 
I hope you can see that all of that cannot be drawn from these simple words here. You can't even draw that from all of the rest of the, Old Test- the New Testament either. And when it comes to thinking about the leadership of God's church, surely we should let God's word, God, be the authority on something this important. Other people go for a range of other answers. For example, the rock is Peter's confession. Jesus, you are the Messiah. Or the rock is the apostles, the twelve, and their teaching. Or the rock is Jesus himself and his words. There's lots of debate, but I think we should take Jesus' words here to mean this. Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, because you have seen me for who I am, And because you have seen me first for who I am, because you believe in me, you rightly confess me to be the Messiah, Peter, you are the rock that I will build my church on. That is, Peter, I will use you and your testimony, Jesus is the Messiah, I will use you and your testimony to grow my church, to mightily bring people to myself, people who believe in me and follow me. We can see this in verse 19. Jesus gives Peter the promise of the keys of God's kingdom and authority to bind and loose things. Now, these are tricky words too, uh, and so we need to have some humility about these words too. And We're actually going to come back to these words in a few weeks' time when Jesus repeats them. He says them again. But Peter is saying, in short, you will open the way for people to come into God's kingdom. As you preach the gospel, as you tell people Jesus is the Messiah, people will come into God's kingdom by faith. And so as we see in the rest of the New Testament and as we see it unfold, Peter is prominent, isn't he? In the book of Acts, it's Peter who gives those first few big sermons and he sees the church established. It's Peter uh, who is the one, one of the pillars of the Jerusalem church and, and who takes the gospel to some of those first Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. Jesus did begin to build his church through Peter, through his ministry. And so here, Jesus promises something great and amazing to Peter. But Jesus is not saying, Peter, you are the main game. I will use you exclusively. You are the one and only rock. It's all about you, Peter. Peter is not a rock star, if you get my really, really terrible joke. Thank you for the few small gills there. I'm sorry about that. (laughs) This role, this, this authority was not for Peter alone. Because as we see in the rest of the New Testament, and as we see it unfold, yes, we see Peter's important. Yes, he's one of the apostles. But he's not everything. We see the rest of the apostles Jesus uses them to build his church. We see him use the Apostle Paul. We see him use many, many believers to build his church. And in just two chapters' time, Matthew 18, that's what I mentioned before, we see Jesus gives the church the body of believers. He gives them authority to bind and loose. We'll have to save what that means for a few weeks' time, like I said. But it's there that the church, not just Peter, the church, that Jesus uses to build the church, to bind and loose, to proclaim the gospel and see the kingdom grow. But more on that in a few weeks' time. But Peter, he's the first. 
Peter is the first to truly confess Jesus as Messiah, the first member of the church. Jesus promises that he will use Peter and that confession to do mighty and amazing things. And that's really the big point, kind of, kind of aside from all that. The big point is actually more important than who Peter is or what the rock is. The big point of what Jesus is saying here is that he is the Messiah and he will build his church. He will build his church and the gates of Hades, it says, or the gates of death will not overpower it. That's verse 18. The gates of death hold everyone, don't they? Everyone dies. There's nothing stronger than death. No one escapes it. Once you're in, you're there forever. But Jesus says the gates of death will not eat up his church. His church will never die. And every member of his church has eternal life, even though they might die in this life. And so for 2,000 years, Jesus has been building his church. And it stands to this day. There are faithful believers and there are faithful churches throughout the world today holding on to the gospel of Jesus, that he is the Messiah, and striving to live for him every day. Do you find that encouraging? Jesus continues to build his church. The gates of death have not won. That's why we don't give up. That's why we keep going in our faith. That's why we together proclaim Jesus and grow disciples. Because as we do that, Jesus is building his church. And when the world hates Jesus and his followers, or when so-called Christians deny God's word and celebrate sin, we know we have this promise. Jesus will continue to build his church. And death will never overcome it. So we've seen, who is Jesus? He's the Messiah. He's the King God promised. And now, in the second part of our passage, we see what the Messiah must do. Now that Peter has said, you are the Messiah, now Jesus' disciples get that, something changes from now on. Something changes in Jesus' words, in, in Jesus' teaching. Something uh, There's this kind of glorious aha moment, but, but then Jesus' words take this solemn turn. So look at it with me. Jesus is the Messiah, but but what kind of Messiah is he? Verse 21. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests and scribes, be killed and be raised to the third day. Now that they know who he is, they learn that what he must do And he speaks to them plainly, doesn't he? He says, I must go to Jerusalem, to to the capital city where all the leaders are who hate me. I must walk into that fire. He says, at their hands I will suffer many things. Mockery, false accusation, violence. And then finally they will kill me by hanging me on a cross. But Jesus says, I must do this. This is my calling, he says. This is my sole mission. This is why I came. I was born to die. Later in Matthew, Jesus says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life, to die 
as a ransom for many. And Jesus was resolute in that mission. Knowing what was to come, he went to Jerusalem. He went to the cross for us. And we must never lose our awe and thankfulness for that. For what Jesus knowingly and willingly walked into and did for us. So that we could be forgiven. So that we could know God and have eternal life. But he just gives then a hint. A hint of the amazing victory he will win. He says, I will rise the third day. So having laid it all clearly for them, we realize that the disciples didn't really have that picture of what the Messiah would look like in their minds. It doesn't fit with what they were expecting. See, the Jews were expecting the Messiah to come as a conqueror king. He would take the throne from the Romans. He would, he would sit on the throne. He would, he would set up his palace in Jerusalem. He would rule Israel and lead all the nations subject to him. There's something right about that idea, but not all of it. That's the idea that Peter had of the Messiah. Because Peter, who's just, uh, because Peter, who's just declared that Jesus is the Messiah, uh, well, now he thinks, verse 22, it's a good idea to rebuke the Messiah. He's the first to speak up again, and this time he doesn't get it right. Look what he says. Uh, he says, surely this will never happen to you, Lord. You're the Messiah. You're the king. You won't die. How can you say those things? But then Jesus has a rebuke of his own for Peter. And it doesn't get worse than this. Look at verse 23. Jesus, he fires up. You can't imagine his outrage. Get behind me, Satan. Get out of my sight, he says. Peter had got it so right, but now he gets it so wrong, poor guy. You are an offense, Jesus says, or a stumbling block to me. Peter, you're you're trying to divert me from God's plan and to go instead with man's concern, with with self-preservation, with selfishness. That's what Satan does. It's Satan who wants to tempt Jesus away from the cross so that he doesn't die for our forgiveness for the sins of the world. This is the plan of God. This is the salvation of the world that he is working for. He sent his son into the world that he would take the punishment that we deserve. That he would die for our sin, die on our behalf and take on God's wrath for us. This was Jesus' mission and he was single-mindedly fixed on it. He would fulfill his mission. He would finish his work. He would love us and give himself up for us. And not Peter or even Satan himself would throw him off course from this. That's what the Messiah must do. And praise God that that's what he did do. He went to the cross for God's glory and for our eternal good. We've seen who Jesus is. We've seen what he must do. Now, in the last part of these famous words... Jesus shows us what it means to respond to him, the Messiah, to follow him. So come with me. Let's look at this last part together. If you've tuned out at any point, if the air conditioning is just a little bit too warm and you're feeling a bit cozy, uh, now is the time where the rubber hits the road. So come with me. Prod the person next to you. Let's go. Jesus starts a sales pitch in these verses. But it's not a very good sales pitch. Have a look at verse 24 with me. He says to his disciples, 
If anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Is that how you would start your sales pitch? That's where Jesus starts. He says, deny yourself. Turn away from what you want or what you think you need. He says, take up your cross. That is, walk to your death. That's what a cross represented, your death. He says, follow me. Listen to what I say. Go where I go and do what I do. At this point, Jesus is not a good salesman, is he? He starts with the huge price tag. He says, follow me and it will cost you your life. All of your life. But actually, we've got it the wrong way around. Because Jesus goes on and he says, if you do this, you will actually find true life. And here's the real sales pitch. Look at verse 25. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. Jesus loves this kind of cryptic, proverbs-like teaching. What's he saying? He's giving a warning and a promise. On the warning side, he's saying, if you want to keep your life on this earth and keep it to yourself and live it for you and not for Jesus... Or in verse 26, if you want to gain the whole world and live for the things of this world, the stuff and the experiences, and ignore eternity, if that's how you choose to live, you will lose your life. What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about death and facing God's judgment. If you choose to live for yourself and not Jesus, for now and not eternity, The warning Jesus gives is that you will lose your life in death and then face an eternity of God's judgment for your sin, for your rejection of him. This is the punishment that fits the crime, that the crime of ignoring the God who is holy and righteous and who made you and everything. The crime of living as if he doesn't exist or that he doesn't deserve to be worshipped and glorified. Verse 26, Jesus says that gaining the whole world and everything in it is not worth facing that. When you weigh up your life, the whole world is not a worthy price to pay for it. Your very life is the most valuable thing you have, and it's not worth trading for a few years of fun here on earth to then lose it for eternity in hell. It's not worth giving up eternal glory and joy in the presence of God for a little bit of a play here on earth. Jesus says, don't do it. Don't make that trade. Don't sell yourself immeasurably short. Don't lose your life because you care more about it than you care about Jesus and eternity. Jesus is saying, if you try to have it all in this life, you will lose it all and your life, when Jesus comes in the glory of his Father to judge. That's the warning side, still sounding like a dark sales pitch. What about the promise? The promise is the opposite. The promise is that if you lose your life to Jesus, for Jesus, you will actually find real life. True life is found in choosing to die. Choosing to die to yourself. 
True life is found in losing your life to Jesus and for him. If you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him, if you die to yourself and live for Jesus, you will find true life. The gift of eternal life. The gift of having your sin forgiven. The salvation from God's judgment that he promises. Citizenship in heaven and a place in God's new creation when Jesus returns. And in the meantime, you will find life as it was meant to be. Living every day for the glory of Jesus. Finding joy in him and in serving him. Even through the struggles. Jesus shows us what it means to respond to him as Messiah. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. It's turning to him in repentance and faith and giving all of yourself to him. So as we bring it together, let's think and finish uh, with our response to Jesus in this passage. What is our response here and now today? Every person has to stop and think in light of these words and think about their response to Jesus. Do I believe that that Jesus is the Messiah, the King who rules over all creation and all nations? Do I know that he went to the cross for me, for my sin? Do I truly take up my cross and follow him? For all those who say, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus, this passage is a great encouragement to keep going, isn't it? Keep handing all of your life over to Jesus. Keep growing in your knowledge and your love and your trust of him and thankfulness for his death and the joy of living for him, losing your life for him. But it's also a great challenge, isn't it? Because every one of us has something to repent of when we're faced with Jesus' words here. Some part of us that we haven't died to, something that we have not been willing to hand over to Jesus some way that we choose not to follow him. And so if things come to mind for you, you know what you must do. Repent and believe. You must confess that sin of withholding from Jesus and hand over that part of your life to him. Then you will know even more the joy of living for Jesus. But if you're here and you recognize that perhaps, and even perhaps for the first time, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the king, that he is the real deal, that he died for me, and that I need to believe in him and give my life to him. If that's you, then listen to what Jesus calls you to do today. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow him. Lose your life to him. Hand it to him, all of it. And you will find true life for all eternity and now. Forgiven and given eternal joy in him. Start today and ask someone here tonight for help with that. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you again for your word. We praise you for the clarity of Jesus' words. And their great rebuke to us and their great encouragement to us as well. Father, help us to deny ourselves, take up, your, take up our cross and follow your Son so that we might find life that is real, that is joyful, that is eternal.
Father, please strengthen us for this. Forgive us of the ways that we don't do this. And strengthen us to do your will always. In Jesus' name, amen.